Growing up, when your mom or dad would say to you, don't eat candy before a meal, some of you that are moms and dads now are saying that very thing. It was frustrating as a kid, but why did, why did your mom and dad say don't eat candy before a meal? It's because it would ruin the meal. And the problem with candy is it gives you a sugar buzz. And on that sugar buzz, you don't feel hungry. And so candy masks your body's hunger for the real nutrients that it needs. Favorable circumstances in life are like candy. They give you a buzz and oftentimes seem to satisfy that, that deep desire and need for joy in life. Oftentimes we equate joy with favorable circumstances. Which is why David's statement in verse five of Psalm 23 is so shocking. He says, you prepare a table before me, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows in the presence of my enemies. Now we'll unpack it, all three of those phrases represent or symbolic of deep joy. So David says, I experience deep joy. Not after you've removed my enemies, not after the circumstance has turned favorable, but I experience deep joy in the presence, in the midst of my enemies when the circumstances are unfavorable. Now, why? Why can David say that? Why can you rejoice in the presence of your enemies? Well, first, let's define enemies. Who are the enemies that David speaks of? We learn a lot about King David. He was king of Israel through the historical account in First and Second Samuel that speaks of his life, and we learn a lot in the Psalms. He wrote a lot of the Psalms and speaks of his enemies in the Psalms. And when you put all that together, you realize that David had two great enemies in his life. It was people, and it was his sin. Regarding people, he was a king. He was in a high place of leadership. So he always, always had people that didn't like him. He always had people that were opposing him. He always had people that were envious of him and, and, and tried to slander him and bring him down from his high position, whether by physical force or by, by verbal slander. David always had enemies in the form of people. In fact, Psalm 62, verses three to four are an example of this. David says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Slander, hypocrisy, opposition. And that's an example that is prevalent through David's songs. He had real enemies. He had people that were opposed to him, and you do too. 
If you've lived in this world long enough, you recognize that there are people that don't like you. And for some of you, that is just hard to imagine. But that's life in a broken world. There's people that don't like you. There's people that oppose you. If you're in a position of leadership, there's people that don't like the way you lead. They don't like decisions you make. And sometimes if they're angry enough, they will go to verbal slander or something to try to tear you down. Opposition is real in the form of people. Now you may say, I've got thick skin. That stuff doesn't bother me. Well, you may have thick skin, but you still have skin. And deep down, all of you know the pain, the insecurity, the self-doubt, the questioning, the shame that creeps into the heart when you are opposed in the presence of enemies in the form of people. You know that feeling. You know it well. David in the Psalms bears his heart before God, and he's honest. He's honest about his enemies and how it hurts him. It brings sadness. It brings shame. It brings insecurity. He cries out to God. That's the beauty of the Psalms. Frees you up to be honest with what you're experiencing in the presence of your enemies. So David had the enemy of people, as you and I do. But second, one of the other great enemies in David's life was his sin. And we see this in his, his life and in his Psalms that he wrote. Psalm 32, for example, speaks of the shame and the guilt that David feels over his sin. And he compares the shame and the guilt, uses the imagery of drowning in Psalm 32, of heat exhaustion, of sickness. Now, we never know what sin David's referring to. It could have been when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to cover it up. It could have been when David took a census of all the people in his kingdom to show off how great he was, to show off his power and his accomplishments and his success. Psalm 51, another great psalm of where you read of David's deep shame and guilt. There he uses the imagery of broken bones, of dirt, to describe the shame and the guilt that he feels in his heart. You have real enemies. David had real enemies. And behind the sin that is your enemy is the great enemy himself, and that is Satan. The scriptures talk about him as the accuser. Your sin accuses you of not being worthy of God's love. Your sin tries to tear you down. It's an enemy. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says this. Opposition is a fact. The Christian who is not conscious of being opposed had better watch himself, for he is in danger. Now, why? Why? Well, if you're not aware of opposition or not conscious of it, then one of two things has happened in your life, maybe both. One is that you've become desensitized to your enemies. You've become desensitized to your sin. You've become desensitized to people that criticize you. And what that means is that your heart 
is becoming hard and you're becoming less human. Or the other thing that may be true is that you have constructed an alternate reality. You just are refusing to face the reality of your sin or the reality of people that really just don't like you and oppose you, which means that you're pretending. So whether it's hard-heartedness or whether it's pretending, neither are a good place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. You have real enemies, and you need to be aware of that, which then leads to the next question. Why can you rejoice in the presence of these enemies? Well, David tells us in verse 5, he says, in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table before me, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. What does this mean? In the ancient world, all three of these phrases were describing what it meant to be a gracious host. In the ancient world, people would travel long distances by foot to go to somebody's house. That's the way it worked. And in the Middle East, the heat was intense. And so when a guest arrived at your house, most likely their skin was burnt, maybe even cracked by the the hot Middle Eastern sun, their throats were parched. And so good hospitality, good care and kindness said that you would provide oil and wine for them. Oil for their skin to bring refreshment and comfort. A cup of wine to to clear their parched throat. You say, now how do we know this? Well, let me give you a couple Psalms. As an example, Psalm 45, 7. Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness, right? Joy, refreshment. Psalm 92.10, you have poured over me fresh oil. Then you have the example in Luke 7, where the sinful woman comes up to Jesus while she's having dinner with the Pharisees. And that woman comes to Jesus and begins to anoint his feet and kiss his feet. And the Pharisees didn't like this because Jesus was letting somebody that dirty and that sinful come near. And so after dinner, Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, the one who had invited him to be a guest, in Luke 7, 46, Jesus says, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Oil was about being a gracious host. It made the face to shine. It adorned the guest. It symbolized and suggested rejoicing. So what about you prepare a table before me? What does that mean? Very similar, gracious host would prepare a table full of food and drink to bring refreshment to their guest, but also kings would prepare a table for all that were in their household. And there's a beautiful example of this with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David was king of Israel, but before David, Saul was king. And towards the end of Saul's reign, when God anointed David as king, Saul became jealous, he became envious, and he tried to kill David. He sent his servants and his soldiers after David. He was David's enemy. After time, Saul passed away, 
But during the time that Saul was pursuing David, Saul's son, Jonathan, befriended David. He loved David. He protected David from his father's evil intentions. Saul died, Jonathan died, and then we read in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, David asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? One of David's servants says, yes, there is a person left in Saul's house. It was one of Jonathan's sons. He's crippled in both feet, and his name is Mephibosheth. David says, call for him. Bring him here. So this crippled man comes in the presence of powerful King David, and here's what David says to him in 2 Samuel 9, 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. David prepared a table for this crippled man of the house of Saul. And here's how Mephibosheth responds. Verse eight, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He was shocked that a king of David's stature would lavish honor and kindness on him, an undeserving, crippled man. David poured out kindness. He ordered his servants to till the land that he had restored to Mephibosheth. He ordered them to, to bring in the produce and to bring it to the table to feed Mephibosheth, to continue to lavish this honor on him. And then the whole story ends this way in 2 Samuel 9, 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Isn't it interesting that that story ends by putting a highlight on Mephibosheth's unworthiness, that he was a cripple, and it highlights the fact that you and I are crippled and undeserving. Grace is shocking. And when we lose the fact that grace is shocking, we're in a dangerous place. It is shocking and astounding that the God of the universe would lavish his kindness and his love and his honor on undeserving cripples like you and me. That's astounding. And it's meant to be astounding. God prepares a table for you and invites you to it. Listen to this beautiful description of the table that God prepares for you. Out of Isaiah 25, verses six through eight. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, the shame of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. God has prepared a table, and it is a spread. And it's expensive, and it's extravagant. And he invites you to it, and it costs you nothing. He paid for this table. He spared no expense. It cost him his own son, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, to prepare this table for you, to prepare this honor, this kindness to come from God to you. Every time you eat and drink at the Lord's Supper, you are eating and drinking from a table that was prepared at great cost by God through his son Jesus. What love, what honor, what kindness from God. In the movie, A Beautiful Mind, it's a movie that was inspired by the true story of John Nash was a brilliant mathematician, but who struggled all his life deeply with mental illness, specifically with schizophrenia. He was a professor at MIT, and there, it was there that his schizophrenia, his delusions, his psychotic behaviors just about took his life and certainly derailed his career. But years later, he became a professor at Princeton. And it's there that he won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1994. Towards the end of this movie, there's a man who comes up to John Nash and he tells him he's being considered for the Nobel Prize. And John Nash can't believe it. He's convinced that his psychotic delusions have taken over and that this can't be real. And the man convinces him, no, you're really being considered for the Nobel Prize. And and then he invites them into the professor's lounge at Princeton, a place that John Nash had never gone because he was aware of his psychotic behavior. He knew that all the faculty was aware of it. He had shame over it. He experienced embarrassment. And so he would never set foot in the professor's lounge for fear of being embarrassed or being shamed. But he finally followed this man in, sat down at a table with him, it's a moving scene. He's explaining to this man the embarrassment that everyone is going to experience when he has to walk on stage to accept the Nobel Prize. He says, I take my medications, but it doesn't help sometimes. I have these psychotic breakdowns and, and I'll be an embarrassment to you and to all these professors. And he's going on and on about his unworthiness because of his mental illness. And then these professors, one by one, they stand up and they walk over to his table and they put their pen down in front of John Nash, which at Princeton is a tradition that they do to show honor to a highly esteemed colleague. And they set their pen down and they say, it's an honor, John. It's such a picture, a beautiful picture of the honor that God bestows on cripples like you and me. 
in the presence of our enemies, not once it's healed, but in the presence of it. Mental illness can be such a source of shame and embarrassment and isolation and rejection. It can be such an awful enemy. And if you've experienced mental illness, if you have it, if you have a friend or a loved one with it, you know that. You know how isolating it can feel. And while you may feel shame and you may feel embarrassment by it, I will tell you this, at God's table that he's prepared for you, there is nothing but honor from him and love that is lavished on you in the presence of such an awful enemy. He honors you. He showers his love on you. And when you sit at God's table, you don't sit alone. You don't sit isolated. You sit united to Jesus Christ. And that's why God honors you and lavishes you with his honor. Because you're never alone. Jesus Christ is always by your side, united to you. Two questions. Do you believe that God puts up with you? Do you believe that he puts up with you? Or do you believe that he willingly and gladly lavishes his love upon you through his son, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection? The reason I ask you those questions is because if you functionally believe that God puts up with you, your eyes will never leave your enemies. Your eyes will be stuck on the people that oppose you, the people that criticize you, the people that don't like you. Your eyes will be stuck on your sin that's against you that brings all this accusation and shame. If you believe God puts up with you, your eyes will be stuck on your enemy. But if you believe that God willingly and gladly lavishes his love upon you through Jesus Christ and honors you with great joy, your gaze will shift from your enemies to the person of Jesus Christ. Whose opinion really counts in your life? Whose opinion most counts in your life? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a mom or a dad. Maybe it's a client or a patient. Or maybe it's a student. Maybe even your spouse. The problem with human opinions is that ultimately they're like shifting sand. To rejoice in the presence of your enemies or should I say the ability to rejoice in the presence of your enemies depends on you functionally believing that God's opinion of you is the only one that counts, and in Christ Jesus, it is an opinion of acceptance 
and of love and of honor that's lavished upon you? Why can you rejoice in the presence of your enemies? Because you have a seat at the table that God has invited you to and prepared in which he lavishes you with his honor and his love. But what should that produce? What should the kindness of God towards you produce in your life? You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil, David says. And then that last phrase, my cup overflows. David doesn't say my cup's filled. It's not just filled. It overflows, which means it's filled and it continues to overflow. David speaks here of, of, of God's kindness that flows into his life and that flows over, as we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That kindness is meant to flow into your life from God and then to overflow into the lives of others. Back to what David said in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. He says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now remember the context. David was Saul's enemy. Saul was trying to kill him. You would expect David to say, is there anyone left in Saul's house so that I can take revenge and solidify my kingship? Make sure that all the enemies are gone. Or you would expect him to say, is there anyone left in Saul's house that I can destroy to get rid of him? But no, David says, is there anyone left in this house that almost obliterated my life? that I can show kindness to. And you say, how could David ask that, even intend that? Why? Well, the key is his motivation. What was David's motivation? For Jonathan's sake. Right? Jonathan's sake. It was on the account of Jonathan that David sought out Mephibosheth because Jonathan had been kind to David. He had loved David. He had befriended David. He had helped David. He had protected David. He had saved David's life. Jesus is the greater Jonathan in this story. Jesus has loved you. Jesus has befriended you. He has helped you. He has protected you. He has saved your life. It's on the account of your love for him, your commitment to him for Jesus' sake that you show kindness to others. Now, what do we learn about this kindness from the story of David and Mephibosheth and how it's very different from the way our culture views kindness? One cultural view of kindness is that it is reserved for those who deserve it. In our polarized era, where it's harder and harder to find common ground, 
The circles of those who deserve it are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that we are to show kindness to those who don't deserve it. Because Jesus has shown kindness to us who don't deserve it, as David showed kindness to Mephibosheth, who didn't deserve it. The other view of kindness in our culture is actually quite the opposite. The other view of kindness says, be kind to everyone in the form of being civil and nice. This view of kindness almost waters it down to this bland attempt to be nice to people. Niceness and kindness are not the same thing. David wasn't going along his business, and then suddenly he sees this cripple, Mephibosheth, come in front of him, and he felt compassion and did something nice to him. No, David sought out Mephibosheth to be kind to him. Kindness is intentional. Kindness is intentional. It looks for someone to bless. It looks for the opportunity to deliver it. Showing kindness is swimming upstream right now in our day. We live in a day right now where bullying is to be symbolic of strength and where insults are a sign of toughness. It's just the opposite. Kindness is strength. It takes a strong person to return good for evil. It takes a strong person to return blessing for curse. It takes a strong person to return compliment for insult. And the reason it takes a strong person is because to do that, you have to become completely vulnerable. And the only way you can become completely vulnerable is if your security is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, the strong one, whom you eat at the table with, to be renewed in that strength. Gladys Staines and her husband Graham and their children served as missionaries in India for many years. They served the lepers in India, in India's eastern state called Orissa. On January 22nd, 1999, Gladys's husband Graham and her two sons, at the time they were 10 and seven years old, were burned alive by militant Hindus. After the sentencing of the killers, Gladys released a statement that shocked the nation of India. In that statement, she said she had completely forgiven the killers and she had no bitterness towards them. And so instead of leaving India, she remained with her daughter and continued to pour out the kindness of Jesus Christ onto these lepers that she had served for 15 years. About five years, almost six years later, the government of India awarded her with what was one of their highest civilian honors. She took the proceeds that she received as contributions with this award and used them to transfer the, transform the leper house into a full hospital 
the reason that the country was so shocked by her kindness is because they had been through decades of destruction that were marked by violence and revenge, violence and revenge. They had no paradigm, no paradigm for kindness being shown to those that didn't deserve it. Kindness is intentional. Kindness is shown to those who don't deserve it. You have received the kindness of God as an undeserving cripple. You have received kindness from God through Jesus Christ. It's on account of Jesus Christ, your love for him, and your commitment to him for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. Who might you intentionally show kindness to this week? Who might be the unexpected recipient of the blessing of your kindness. That's the kindness of God through Jesus Christ just overflowing into the lives around you. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us. You continue to be so kind to us lavishing your love on undeserving sinners like us, inviting us to your table where you've prepared a spread, pouring out honor on us in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of people who dishonor us, in the presence of our sin that accuses us, in the presence of the embarrassment and the shame of our mental illness, you pour out the honor that our hearts long for. Thank you, Father. We pray that we wouldn't be a dead end for your kindness, that it would flow through us to others, not just to those who deserve it, but specifically to those who don't deserve it. That we would be intentional. And that our joy, receiving your kindness, would overflow into the lives of others all with the eye to one day feasting in your presence, Jesus, at your table with a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray this all in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.